I'd like to introduce tonight's guest, Ms. Susan Jacoby. Ms. Jacoby is an independent scholar whose work now focuses on American intellectual history. She began her writing career as a reporter for the Washington Post. Since then, her articles and essays have appeared in many publications, including the New York Times Magazine, Washington Post Book World, Los Angeles Times Book Review, Harper's, and Vogue. She is also the author of the weekly column, The Spirited Atheist, at the On Faith website published by the Washington Post. Ms. Jacoby has been the recipient of many grants and awards from the Guggenheim, Rockefeller, and Ford Foundations, as well as the National Endowment for the Humanities. In 2001-2002, she was named a fellow at the Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library. Never Say Die, The Myth and Marketing of the New Old Age is Susan Jacoby's 10th nonfiction book. Her most recent books include the New York Times bestseller, The Age of American Unreason, and Alger His and the Battle for History. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Susan Jacoby. Thank you, and thank you for coming out on this what seems to me wasn't the weather I expected in Los Angeles. Before I get started, I, I like to sort of take the measure of where my audience thinks about something. Would those of you who would like to live to be 100 raise your hands? A lot more here than in the East. That's interesting. But I suspect what you mean is, is that you'd like to live to be 100 if you could live to be 100 having a sound mind and reasonably good health. I, I really think that that's what everybody means when they say they want to live to be 100. So there are a lot of time bombs in this room. One of them is standing here right behind this podium. And the rest of you are scattered throughout the audience. Uh, you all know, you're probably tired of hearing, that the oldest members of the baby boom generation are turning 65 this year. And many of you out there in your 50s and 60s are right behind us. So here I am, standing before you at 65, as healthy and energetic as I've ever been, except for an arthritic knee that really isn't the result of my age, but can be traced to a very unglamorous fall over a lettuce leaf in my local fruit store 20 years ago. Not very glamorous. So why do I call myself a time bomb? Because in 20 years, unless I die at a younger age than the rest of the women in my family, who generally live well into their 90s, I'm going to be leaving the relatively healthy country of what demographers call the young old and entering the much harsher territory of the old old. In fact, there are going to be 8.5 million of us over 85 by 2030. And I our country is simply unprepared to deal with the social and economic consequences of such a large aging population. Now, one reason we're unprepared is that Americans aren't, shall we say, very good at long-term thinking. Uh, but the second and much more important reason is that we don't really like to think about what it means to live in the land of the old, old. The boomers in particular believe in some variation on a fairy tale ending in which when we do die, we'll drop dead of a heart attack, having never been sick before then, while making love, paragliding, climbing a mountain, or skydiving. Now, the skydiving or paragliding centenarium is a very popular image, found not only in AARP publications, but in a new commercial which is all over the TV right now, on behalf of a financial advisory firm boasting that it has somehow managed to teach a woman to accumulate enough money to live richly in her old age, which happens to be, you find out at the end of a commercial, 186. At the end of this commercial, she's shown paragliding, and I guess she's going to have that heart attack eventually too, and never have to endure a day of old age in bad health. Now, this fairy tale bears about as much resemblance to most real deaths in old age old, old age, which come after an extended period of physical or mental disability, bears about as resemblance, much resemblance to reality as the earlier boomer fantasy of painless childbirth without drugs did to real labor. Here are the women in the audience. Here's a part of what old, old age really means. 
more than half of us who live long enough to blow out 85 candles will suffer from dementia, of which Alzheimer's disease is the leading cause before we die. More than half will spend some time in a long-term care institution. Most of the old, old are women, and women, unless they were married to very rich men who left them piles of money, grow poorer as they grow older for a variety of reasons I'll return to later. One of the main ones being that the oldest survivors are widows who don't have a devoted partner to care for them at home. Uh, as that, well, that's what happened to my grandmother. She'd lived to be 99 and outlived her assets and lived on Medicaid in a nursing home in her final years. Now, it's a good thing she died in 1998 at age 99 before there was a political movement to cut the deficit by depriving so-called greedy geezers of the entitlements to which they are apparently no longer entitled. It costs more to live out your final years and to die when you don't have someone who loves you to do the caretaking without being paid. I'm sorry if any of you find that too blunt, but I helped care for my partner who is 15 years older than I am and died of cancer mercifully several years ago before he completely lost his mind to Alzheimer's. So I have a pretty good idea. And it's a truly frightening prospect of what it would mean to be in that same condition without a loving partner to help shoulder the burden. So what's wrong to hope to, for, with hoping to be in the healthier half of the oldest survivors? Nothing at all. And I, I, like I'm sure everyone else in this room, I hope that if I live into my 80s and 90s, I'll be like Betty White or Justice John Paul Stevens, who's writing brilliant legal essays now that he's retired from the Supreme Court that any of us of any age would be thrilled to write. Uh, I decided to write Never Say Die when I attended a panel on aging several years ago at the World Science Festival in New York. The title was 90 is the New 50. Who could possibly believe that, I asked myself, which is why I went. And I found that there was a standing room only crowd and the atmosphere was pretty much like the enthusiasm at Sister Sharon's revival meetings in the old movie Elmer Gantry. I submit to you that 90 is not the new 50. It's not even the new 70. And 70 isn't the new 50 either. And these are not harmless delusions. They're dangerous because they pose a real obstacle to serious public discussion about what we need to do as individuals and as a society to make 90 a better 90 and 80 a better 80. Now, when I was growing up in the 1950s, old age was generally viewed as a dull and dreary time of life, something that began as soon as a man was forced to uh, retire and returned home to bother his wife, whose only role was that of babysitter for the grandchildren. Uh, if the image of parents having sex was unnerving, the image of grandparents having sex was utterly unimaginable. Many of these attitudes did begin to change in the late 1960s, I think for two reasons. First, Americans over 65 then were influenced by and participated in the dissident spirit of the times. Plenty of grandparents marched for civil rights and against the Vietnam War. Dr. Benjamin Spock, the emblematic elder statesman of the anti-war movement then, had been born in 1903. The power of older voters played a major role in the passage of Medicare in 19. The new social activists of that generation coined the term ageism to describe discrimination against and negative stereotyping of the old. And the second and most important factor in the emergence of gray power was, of course, increasing longevity, attributable more to a general improvement in American standard of living than to specific medical advances at that time. When my grandmother was born in 1899, only 4% of Americans were over 65. By the late 60s, 10% were. Now we're get, we're, it's 13% and in 20 years it will be 20%, one out of five. So it's the much needed debunking of stereotypically negative images of old age is the positive, but the flip side is this. It's considered great to be old only if you're, quote, aging successfully, unquote, which means that you must not exhibit or talk about the worst problems of advanced old age if you are old. Here's what one cannot do and be considered a person who is aging successfully. Complain about health problems to anyone younger. Weep openly for a friend or lover who's been dead more than a few months. Admit to depression or loneliness. 
express nostalgia for the past, either personal or historical, or voice any fear of future dependency, whether because of poor physical health, poor finances, or the worst scourge of advanced old age, Alzheimer's. And by the way, American society also looks with suspicion on old people who demand to be let alone to deal with aging in their own way. One must look neither too needy for companionship nor too content with solitude to be considered a role model for successful aging rather than a discontented geezer or crone. Successful aging awards are conferred only on those who have managed often as much by biological good luck as effort, to avoid or convince others that they've avoided the arduous uphill fight that everyone eventually makes. The reality evaded by propagandists for this great new old age is that we're all capable of aging successfully until we aren't. There are three things I think we need to look at when we think about the future of the old in America. One is health, both physical and mental. The other is economic class and money. Who is able to save enough for a decent standard of living in old age, and who isn't? Uh, And the third is more elusive, emotional satisfaction or happiness or wisdom, whatever you want to call it, for those who live into their 90s with intact minds. I realize that I'm about to present a portrait of advanced old age that some will find too pessimistic and negative, and they'll make you want to shoot the messenger. I call myself realistic, not pessimistic, and I believe that a realistic look at scenarios ranging from the ordinary to the worst case is necessary before we can seriously begin to talk about what to do to make life better, for not just for rich old people and commercials who are paragliding at age 186. I'd like to point out that I'm using the word old deliberately because it's considered an obscenity by the mass media. I've had it edited out of articles I cannot tell you how many times. I just consider it an honorable description of a stage of life. The Today Show on the first Monday of 2011 kicked off the year with a story about the boomers turning 65 in a segment titled, What Else? Forever Young. None of the experts on the panel, and it went on for 10 minutes, which is like dog ears for a television segment. None of these experts use the word old even once. The preferred euphemisms are older, older than whom, I ask you, and aging. Now, aging is a particularly idiotic euphemism for old, because while we're all aging, we're not all old. My nieces are in their 20s, and they're aging, and they're young. 65 is certainly not middle age. You do the math. How many 130-year-olds have you seen walking around out there? Another reason I've wrote this book, as I've mentioned, is that I'm the daughter and granddaughter of long-lived women. My maternal grandmother lived with a sharp mind and a ruined body that forced her to spend the last years of her life in a nursing home. I will never forget her saying to me on a day when I took her out of the home for a picnic on a nearby riverbank, and it turned out to be the last day I saw her on earth. She said, the worst thing about having lived to this age is to know that you're no longer of use to anyone else. She did not say this bitterly, but with a clear-eyed vision that her life had become not life as she defined it, and my grandmother defined her life by her own usefulness. My mother is 90, and she also has a sound mind and a body that now confines her largely to her room in an assisted living facility. When my last book was published three years ago, she organized a reading for me at a bookstore in my hometown. And believe me, if she'd organized all of my readings, you'd be looking at someone who'd arrived here in a limo and whose sales were in the vicinity of Danielle Steele's and James Patterson. Wouldn't be looking around for fellowships at the New York Public Library. This time around, however, just three years later, my mother is not physically able to get through an event that lasts an hour. She's lived too long to live well by her own definition, not mine. But until three years ago, she was a perfect example of successful aging. Much as we would all like to be among the much-touted, perfectly healthy exceptions among the very old, I'm suggesting that my mother is much more typical, as my grandmother was, of what happens if you do live too long to live well. 
And I also think that the much-needed debunking of negative stereotypes of old age has been accompanied by a new, more subtle, but no less pernicious form of ageism. Uh, American culture exalts old people who are vigorous enough to shatter the stereotypes of the 50s, but it, this is coupled with a downplaying of real disabilities of old age, like Alzheimer's, and an exaggeration of the capacity of science to perform medical miracles this year. Uh, that soon medicine will intervene and produce a cure for Alzheimer's and other lethal age-related diseases. I'm going to talk a bit more about Alzheimer's, although I know it's the last thing anyone, one, of, one of us wants to think about, whatever age we are, because the way it's discussed in the media embodies, I believe, the double-think that surrounds most of the issues associated with an aging population. Uh, my own partner suffered from Alzheimer's for five years, and his was the most before he and he died of cancer before he lost the last remnants of the most brilliant mind I've been privileged to know intimately. The media have long disingenuously told people that Alzheimer's is not a part of normal aging, and that only 10% of people over 65 suffer from it. That 10% figure is true, but what it omits is that the risk of Alzheimer's doubles in every five-year period over 65 and increases to 50-50 over 85. How can a disease, and it is a disease, that affects half of people in a particular age group not be age-related? It makes no sense. The second piece of bad news on this particular front is that in view of serious medical researchers who aren't trying to raise the value of stock in their own biotech companies, an effective medical intervention to delay, much less cure Alzheimer's, is probably decades, not years away. Uh, it will come eventually, certainly something to delay Alzheimer's, but probably not in time for us, for our children and grandchildren, probably. The third piece of bad news is that none of the things that boomers believe are going to help us, quote, defy old age, exercise a nutritious diet, maintaining a healthy weight, spending a lot of money on computer programs to make old brains young, have been found to have any scientifically replicable or verifiable effect. And I'm sorry to be the bearer of this news, I will tell you. Last August, the National Institutes of Health made a rigorous evaluation of all of the studies on this by scientists who truly believed they would find encouraging results. And the scientists themselves were devastated to find that the effects were negligible. Now, there are huge numbers of reasons for doing all these good things, not smoking, exercising, eating moderately. But these things are good in themselves because they make life better at any age, not because they're a magic talisman against the worst aspects of old, old age. I'm particularly outraged by those ads for memory-enhancing drugs. You've all seen them, uh, which were also found to be worthless in the NIH review. You know the ones I'm talking about in which the daughter to the other daughter and expresses her joy that this very expensive drug has helped dad be more like himself. These ads never show dad taking his pill, walking out the door, only to get lost and be returned home by the police seven hours later. <laughs> that would be depressing. They never show my partner turning to me on the bus and haltingly searching for the words to describe his frustration. Here's what he said, I feel it somewhere inside me is the person I really am. I mean the person I was before, but I can't find him. I can't talk to him. There is a real description of what Alzheimer's is. And so what do you do when you hear this from someone? You try to provide experiences from watching ball games to going to concerts that stimulate the part of the brain that's still functioning. You bring out photo albums of things you've done in the past, places you've gone. And he turns them and asks over and over again where the pictures were taken and says, I'm so stupid. And when you fail to resign yourself to your own impotence, if there's an expensive memory pill the doctor has prescribed, even if you've read enough of the medical literature to know the drug has little to no value, you make sure that this man, who's told you he can no longer talk to himself, takes the drug. He took those pills docilely, but I'm quite sure that while he could still th think things through, he had no faith in them. Once he said in Yiddish, after taking the pill on a beautiful summer day, 
Gornische Helfen, which means beyond help or nothing will help. This had been the punchline of a number of very old Jewish jokes he used to tell in the days when he could still tell jokes. I tell this story not because this experience, either my experience of caring for someone with Alzheimer's or his of knowing that his mind was dying. I tell a story not because it is unusual, but because it is common. And that is the case not just with Alzheimer's, but with many of the realities of old age, including the fact that the huge gap between the rich and the poor weighs even more heavily on the old and the young. Sergeant Shriver died last month at home, surrounded by his family and with the best palliative care that money can buy. But many of us who will be among the half with dementia will die in nursing homes after our life savings have been exhausted and Medicaid takes over, unless Medicaid is cut too much. Now, it's well known that the gap between the rich and the poor and between the richest of the rich and the upper middle class has widened in our society during the past 20 years. Uh, this has particularly troubling implications for the future of the old 20 years from now. Now, all we're hearing right now from Washington and state governments and in this deficit-conscious era, and obviously few states or no states more aware of this than California, is the need to cut entitlements. What we're not hearing about is any talk about who's going to take care of granny 20 years from now if we do cut these programs. Because I'm here to tell you that if we're not going to kill granny, the term the political right loves to use about voluntary consultations with doctors about end-of-life care, we're going to have to support granny. And a lot of this talk is based on the assumption that today's old are already greedy geezers. As former Senator Alan Simpson of Wyoming so charmingly put it, Social Security is a cow with 310 million tits. I don't think this misogynist metaphor was an accident either, given that the vast majority of Americans over 85 are women. What are the real facts? 75% of Americans over 65 has, have incomes from all sources, including Social Security, of under $34,000 a year. Does that sound like lavish living to you? Uh, it's been assumed that boomer women would be in a better position than their mothers because more boomer women worked outside their homes during their lifetimes. But women are still going to be poorer than men 20 years from now because the interrupted work history of working mothers means that women leave the workforce with lower pensions and lower social security payments. It's quite likely that the boomers, for the most of the boomers, old age is going to be tougher financially than we anticipated. Uh, only half of working Americans today, the more prosperous half with better jobs, even have 401ks that had money and had money to lose in the stock market. Most of the lamentation in the media about the decline in the value of 401ks was done by and on behalf of the 50% of Americans prosperous enough to have made an income that allowed them to contribute to these retirement savings accounts. Most waiters, retail clerks, receptionists, People whose jobs place them among the working poor and the just getting by don't make enough money to contribute to those accounts and their employers don't contribute to them either. This was not the way things were supposed to be. Uh, but in spite of the baby boom generation's need, and however well or poorly our whole economy recovers, there's not going to be any let up, I don't think, in the substantial political pressure for cuts in benefits. Both the size of the federal deficit and the long-term economic difficulties of younger voters, including younger boomers, uh, make, are likely to make young working Americans much less quiescent about ever-increasing Social Security and Medicare deductions than my generation does. And that's another cannonball coming at us down the road. Now, I'm not saying for a moment that we don't have to do rethinking about the way we finance longer lives. But this has to be based on reality. Proposals to raise the retirement age are a case in point. Now, I'm no fan of retirement, and I have no intention of retiring until the reading public retires me, which, of course, could always happen. I plan to go on writing as long as my mind allows me to write. But look again about raising the retirement to age to 70, which sounds so reasonable. What about people whose work has left them physically unable to go on that long? 
I'm not talking just about obvious labor jobs such as coal mining or cleaning toilets in hotels. Uh, think about what it means physically to make your living standing behind a counter in a retail store eight hours a day. There's a chair coming for me for the question and answer session where I'm going to sit down to baby my knee. Do checkout clerks in supermarkets have chairs to sit down when they're tired of standing on their feet? In my neighborhood grocery stores in New York, I see lots of women my own age, most of them African-American and Hispanic, working the cash registers when I'm buying food on my way home from a stint in a very nice room for nonfiction writers at the New York Public Library. Do these women have the same capacity to go on standing their, on their feet eight hours a day into their 70s? To legislators in their 70s and 80s who have staffs to fetch and carry for them. Think about this when they talk about balancing the budget on the back of the old, backs of the old. Healthy old age is costly. Unhealthy old age is even costlier. If there were really such a thing as a radically new brand of old age in which everyone could take care of himself or herself, then there'd be no reason to worry. Society would be off the hook. The boomers, healthy beneficiaries of this new magical old age, would be able to tote that barge and lift that veil until the very end, and nobody of any age would have to pay higher taxes. The final important element in what I like to call the emotionally correct version of old age, I think of emotional correctness as a first cousin to political correctness, is the largely unexamined conviction that people grow wiser as they grow older, and this makes up for everything else. Now, the only problem with this, in my view, is that there's about as much evidence of the wisdom of old age as there is of the medical efficacy of holy water from Lourdes. Uh, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there aren't lots of wise old people, but that merely growing older doesn't magically create wisdom. Wise people are those who learn from their experiences and their mistakes. And if you're not doing that in, at 40 and 50, you don't suddenly acquire that ability when you turn 60 or 70 or 80. My grandmother was the wisest person I've ever known. And she was wise when I first began to know her as a person when he, we, she, she was in her 50s and I was 10. If she'd been a nasty, abusive, mean, stupid woman at 50, she wouldn't have turned into an 80-year-old who was loved by every young person who ever met her. People who can't admit that they're wrong and learn from their mistakes at 40 remain who they were in later years, only more so. I give you as exhibits A and B, our former Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, now 78, and Henry Kissinger, now 87. The chief quality of Rumsfeld's memoir is, 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 is that if any mistakes were made in the war in Iraq, which he doesn't acknowledge there were, they weren't his mistakes. He's exactly who he always was, a responsibility-shifting bureaucrat whose only purpose in reflecting wisely on his long career is not to look at it with newly acquired knowledge, but to justify himself. Kissinger, in a memoir written five years ago at age 82, acts as if the extension of the Vietnam War into Cambodia, which experts of many political persuasions regard as one of the major American foreign policy disasters of the 20th century, has nothing to do with him. He writes that someday, quote, we must try to figure out why Watergate overwhelmed everything else and how good and wise men failed in an effort to avoid this disaster, unquote. He doesn't ever suggest or look at the possibility that maybe they weren't such good and wise men and that neither he nor his boss, Richard Nixon, were particularly wise. But Kissinger's constantly being consulted as a wise old man, and if Rumsfeld lives long enough, he probably will be too. A question I've been asked frequently at various appearances in the last two weeks is how to reconcile my vision of old age as, as basically a battle after a certain point with studies that seem to show that people grow happier as they grow older. My answer is that the media, which relentlessly promote the idea that older means happier, have left something very important out of these surveys. What they actually show is that people are happier in their 60s and early 70s that they, than they were in their 40s and 50s, and that the happiness level begins to drop again around age 80. Furthermore, some of these polls, like a much-quoted Gallup poll last year, 
actually exclude people over 85 entirely. In other words, they don't even ask people over 85 whether they're happy or not. They exclude everyone who lives in an institution as well. And of course they exclude everyone who suffers from dementia because no one with advanced dementia can answer a question. Uh, as people age, they can naturally expect more losses, whether from death of a spouse and friends to serious illness, over which they have no control. But Americans are told constantly that even if they can't control their objective circumstances, they can change their attitude toward what's happening. And the only acceptable change is to accentuate the positive. A classic example of positive attitude propaganda titled The Secrets of Re Resilient People appeared last year in the AARP magazine, which reaches more Americans over 50 than any print media outlet in the United States. What defines people who are success successful at handling the losses of aging, asked the magazine. They view the glass as half full, profound. They find the silver lining. They, quote, actively seek solutions, unlike those of us who presumably refuse to get out of bed in the morning. They're spiritual. They're playful. There's certainly no hope here for an atheist who looks at a cloud and sees a cloud. One of the people quoted... <laughs> One of the people quoted in this article was one Deborah Robinson, whose 57-year-old husband was diagnosed with early Alzheimer's in 2002. I want to read this to you directly. She survived the inevitable progr progress of her husband's disease and his death by, quote, reframing the situation in the most positive terms possible. She decided that we would rise above it and it would be our finest hour. The article goes on to present a formula for positive change to those whose dark view of life prevents them from thinking about Alzheimer's diagnosis as an opportunity for personal growth. Quote, experts say that negative thinking is just a bad habit, the article assured readers, though it may take some work to change your mindset. I'll say, if someone had told me that my partner's being diagnosed with Alzheimer's was an opportunity for us to have our, quote, finest hour, well, I'm not a trained boxer, but I don't know if I would have been able to control myself. I also think there's something insidious about the equation of happiness with contentment, accompanied as often as not by physical exhaustion in the old. My mom, after a knockout course of IV antibiotics to clear up an infection recently, had the temerity to complain about how tired she was to a visiting nurse. Why don't you just be good to yourself and lie in bed all day and watch TV, dear, the nurse said. Well, as it happens, staying in bed and watching TV is not my mother's idea of a meaningful and fulfilling day. She's not contented. I admire her for that. If I'm fortunate enough to retain the powers of my mind, I hope to remain a discontented work in progress as long as I live. I've asked myself repeatedly why I feel so strongly that the myth and marketing of the new old age are harmful, not only to society, but to individuals who must live through real old age. There's an argument to be made, and many people have made it to me, that belief in agelessness, that age is just a number, is no more deleterious to adults than belief in Santa Claus is to children. To this I reply that adults are not children. The old are not children, even though they're often treated as children. Hope is not incompatible with realism, but it is incompatible with the expectation that things are going to turn out well if only we conduct ourselves well. Inflated expectations about successful aging, if the body imposes a very cruel old age, can lead to real despair. I've heard genuine bitterness rather than irony in the voices of some people facing some new bodily catastrophe who whisper the golden years under their breath in a tone that sounds like a curse. The great French writer Colette said at 79, she died in her 80s, she said, we can never look enough, never exactly enough, never passionately enough. The myth of the new old age spreads a miasma that obscures the intensity of memory and vision that is the gift of sentience if one is fortunate enough to remain aware until the end. It is impossible to look enough, to look exactly enough, to look passionately enough if what you're looking at 
is a fantasy. On our last day together, my grandmother did not only mourn for her uselessness. This poet with only an eighth grade education also took a long last look at the river and said, it's good to know that the beauty of the world will go on without me. If I can say that in full knowledge of my own rapidly approaching extinction, I'll consider my life a success, even though I certainly will have failed as everyone ultimately does to defy old age. Thank you. I wanted to ask what role does um, assisted suicide play in our dealing with old age? But I actually want to talk about a different issue, which is when you mentioned Rumsfeld and Kissinger, uh, and I concur with your observations on their um, success or lack thereof, and how you would, um, I guess, put Robert McNamara in that. Because he is someone who impressed me as someone who had, through the documentary Fog of War, gone through some serious self-examination and perhaps thought twice about what he had done during the Vietnam War. I'll just answer the last one first. I agree with you about Robert McNamara. I just don't think people came, but you're, you're right. I think he is somebody who, who has learned something from, from his mistakes. Assisted suicide, I just came from Washington and there were a lot of discussions about that. Well, first of all, assisted suicide, the kind of laws that they have in Oregon and Washington, I believe that those are good laws but they don't apply to old age per se as to people with very specific terminal conditions, conditions which will kill them within six months. And even so, the fact is, is that even in extreme situations, most people don't commit suicide, as we know from the very few people who have made use of Oregon's law. Someone asked me about euthanasia last night in Washington, and, and I'm really not opposed to voluntary euthanasia, but I don't think it's a very, a very useful way to think about, about what to do about old age because the desire to live is strong. And, and the idea that people are just going to kill themselves en masse because life becomes more and more unpleasant after a certain point if certain things go wrong with you is ridiculous. Uh, I, I don't want to go on too long because I see that there are other questions, but I, I think what we need to address are things like, for example, there are millions of old people in institutions who, with just a little more home care, which Medicare doesn't pay for, might be able to stay living independently longer. That would be, I think we need to address ourselves to the things that can be changed like that. The lack of affordable rental housing for old people uh, is also a very serious thing. Some people go on Medicaid and nursing homes because there is no subsidized housing. You could subsidize a person in their own rental apartment for about one-fifth of the cost of keeping someone annually in a nursing home. So while I am in favor of assisted suicide and people making their own decisions about this, I don't see it as the, as the solution to the problems of old age because if you're a realist, people really try to avoid killing themselves. <laughs> Have you looked at other societies looking at old age? Because especially uh, a lot of things that you mentioned were, struck me as very specific to American society, and of course you mentioned it numerously. So uh, I just wanted to uh, hear if you have any comments on uh, old age as viewed by other societies. Well, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, first of all, it, you know, people, old age in the developing world is something which, of course, given the low life expectancy in poor countries, uh, their life expectancy is lower than ours was in 1850. So people tend not to live to be, and old age was not a huge problem at a time when very few people lived beyond the age of 41, which was the average life expectancy in the 19th century. But in Europe, uh, I'm actually very familiar with all of the European social welfare systems because I was a journalist in Moscow when I was young. And your best friend when you were a Western correspondent in Moscow were correspondents from those other terrible places, Norway and Sweden and all of those places that, uh, that the Tea Party thinks would be a terrible thing to have. And we've kept in very close touch because the bonds formed between journalists 
in a society that was not then very hospitable to them or very close. And I know the main, we've all had similar careers as journalists, as scholars, as writers, uh, careers that, that, that are middle class careers, but uh, unless you hit the jackpot, don't make you fabulously rich. Big difference between me and most of my former colleagues from Norway and Sweden is I'm scared to death financially about the next 20 to 30 years, and they aren't because they've paid it forward in the taxes into a social welfare system which provides those things, like I was just talking about home care, which our society does not. Now, I remember very, we've, we've emailed back and forth about this, a lot of my old friends and I and, and I, and I've said to them, remember when you used to complain about having to pay so much higher taxes than the American correspondents? And they say, yeah, now we're glad they made us pay those taxes because they're there for us. As far as, as respect for the old, I can only comment on the other countries I know. I think that the, the idea of a youth culture is something that, that really really is spreading around the globe, at least in developed countries. Certainly, people don't, in every country, people don't live in three-generation families nearly as much as they used to. In that respect, Europe is like America, and I have to say that, uh, that most of my friends in Europe, their parents didn't want to live with them in the household any more than a lot of people want to do here. People like, their, people like their independence. It's one of the worst losses of real debility in old, old ages. People like their independence. As we are either by choice or by necessity working you know, longer years and uh, deferring retirement or coming out of retirement to work, what happens to the youth who are trying to get jobs and there are no jobs to have. Is this going to result in a reversal of this sort of the respect for the, for, uh, for the older people in society and, and potentially, you know, turn into sort of like uh, age warfare? I, I think that this is a very serious problem. Now, by the way, a lot of, a lot of people who've been thrown out of jobs are, are, are in their late 50s and early 60s now and can't find them in this economy. But I think, for instance, right now, baby boomers who are lucky enough to work, say, at universities, they're going to have to carry these aging, tenured professors out feet first. I think that, I think that actually... It's a very serious, and I'm not saying that, that everybody should retire at 65, but it's a serious problem when people who would like to retire put off their retirement solely for financial reasons. And in my generation, that is going to be the case. I don't know anyone who can afford to retire. Uh, uh, I would like to hear from those people, but I personally don't know anyone who can afford to retire. And, and this is a problem in companies in terms of, so the jobs that 45-year-olds would have had in universities, 65-year-olds are going to be hanging on to them. And I think anybody in this audience who's a parent who has a kid who is a college graduate knows how very difficult it is now to find entry-level jobs for kids who are trying very hard to do it. I think it's very serious, and it's going to become more serious because there are going to be so many more of us. And there's another thing. I was not exactly imbued with respect for the wisdom of old age when I saw that uh, people over 65, and I'm not saying that the present health care reform bill was a good bill, but people over 65 were the only group, two-thirds of them were opposed to government-financed health care for anyone but themselves. Uh, I don't find that to be a very good sign for the future. And I think if my generation, uh, who is over 65, I just applied for Medicare. I think if my generation takes that same attitude, which is I've got mine and you've got yours to get, we are in for a serious time. Because 30 and 40-year-olds, now the main reason I haven't saved any money for the future, and I am self-employed, but lots of people I know with stingy employers are in the same position, is I had to spend 15% of my after-tax income year after year on health insurance, you know, just to make sure that I, you know, I wouldn't bleed out in the operating room if I had an emergency. Uh, 
if the cost of health insurance keeps going up for the young and they are asked to contribute more for the health insurance, the Medicare of the old, they're not going to be as sanguine about it as I was when I was making social security payments in my 30s. That's why I don't think, you know, I think the original idea, Medicare for everyone, there is no solution to this problem of how to care for the oldest old without a solution to the problem, without a recognition of the stresses on younger workers. Look, we're seeing it all over the country today. Some of the stuff we're seeing in states around the country is just about fear. You know, it's about fear of losing jobs, fear of not having pensions, and there actually is a difference between in in age about that. A lot of a lot of thirty year olds look at what older people who have hung on to their jobs have and say, but I can't get a job and I don't have any health insurance myself. I don't think there's any one generation solution to this. I realize that the previous questions have been um, have a financial aspect. Um, my name is Maureen, and I'd like you, if you can, just to put that on one side. Um, I was uh, struck by your grandmother's um, lament about being useless. And um, do you have any ideas, because I think that's probably not um, unique, do you have any not ideas about how uh, or what we can do to make um, old people feel more useful? One of the problems with that, I mean, that is an urgent thing for the half of the oldest people who do have their minds. I think, for instance, that my grandmother, say, I think she would have been a wonderful storyteller in schools. I mean, so much about her life was something that would be fascinating to younger people. But there was no, she was not able to, to, to get herself to a school. There was no school which, let's say, had a transportation uh, program. Uh, I, I don't think that usefulness needs to be defined by paid work. But I think my grandmother uh, had a lot to give young people, and she did, as long as she could get around by herself. She began to feel useless when she was physically confined to a nursing home, and she no longer had any contact with people of different generations. My grandmother had a lot to tell a lot to tell kids that they would have been fascinated by. Uh, I was fascinated when I was a little kid when she would talk about about what it was like being the 11th child, and she was very smart, and she had to quit eighth grade in 1912 to help support her seven younger brothers and sisters, and she told me, she told me about the night when there was a medical emergency and she had to run three miles to the only phone in the neighborhood where they lived. People didn't, you know, the poor and middle class didn't have private phones in, uh, in 1912, most of them, although the rich did by then. I think that there are a lot of ways that I, I also think there are ways in which old people could also be used in programs for old people too. Because one of the things that happens when people have physical disabilities like my mother and grandmother do is that they can't get around to meet people and see people in the ways that they could. So they're confined to whoever is there. And another, and another thing is that uh, one of the worst aspects of long-term care institutions is that dementia is the main reason why people are there. When someone like my grandmother with a sound mind has to go to one of these places, it is a terrible thing for people to have to, for instance, eat in a dining room surrounded by people who are too demented to carry on a conversation. We need a whole restructuring of things. I think somebody ought to be asking old people like my mother and grandmother how to make things better. They don't, you know. Uh, just preface this briefly by saying that, you know, my, my mother... Um, she struggled through the end with five years of medical care that was progressively, she was progressively worse. And, you know, probably in the last year of her life, it probably cost two or $300,000 to keep her alive. And my father had a terminal, had terminal cancer, cho chose not to be treated and had a fairly good quality of life at the end. How, is there any sign, I mean, this money should have never, no rational person would have spent this much money on my mother's care. Uh, and my mother didn't feel good for one day of the last five years she was alive. I know what you mean. Yes. Is, is there any, do you see any signs that we're going to be able to work through this and come up with a more rational approach towards helping people make their own decisions about what health care they're going to get and not get? 
Yes. One, one of them was proposed, and President Obama caved into the, the crazed right, religious right. And by the way, I should say, for people here, most mainstream religions have no requirement at all in their theology or their thinking that people have aggressive medical care when they no longer want it. This is, this is only this idea that it's death panels to talk with your doctor or your husband or your wife or your child about whether you want to be hooked up in an intensive care unit for the last five or six weeks of your life. That's utter nonsense. I think that, that ha mandating and paying for conversations, which doctors, most of them, no longer have time to have with people of any age, about, well, what do you think uh, if you're in this situation? What kind, what, how far do you want to go? 90% uh, of Americans say they want to die at home, but only 20% do. Only 30% of Americans have living wills. Even fewer have done the thing which is legally necessary in most states, which is appointed somebody with a legal responsibility. It's often assumed that the nearest relative, the wife or the husband or the child, has the legal right to make decisions. Well, first of all, particularly with parents and children, not all children agree with their parents about this. People who want their own wishes followed, and this is one thing we can all do for ourselves individually, People who want their own wishes followed need to write those wishes down in whatever legal form their state requires, and they need to talk not only with their doctors, who are just as scared about aging and death. I don't blame the doctors for giving those memory pills to people. The doctors themselves are agonized at their inability to help people with Alzheimer's. They want to feel they're doing something. Uh, but people need to write their wishes down. And they need, for example, the reason people need to, I hope you really didn't mean I made you feel like killing yourself. The reason I want people to think about Alzheimer's when they don't have it is, is you can, you can, for instance, write down lots of medical procedures, aggressive medical procedures are performed on people with Alzheimer's who didn't write down what they wanted before they had Alzheimer's. If, if, you, if, you, if you have Alzheimer's, do you want major heart surgery? This is an issue that actually comes up in every city, every day in this country, over and over. Expensive medical procedures are formed on someone whose brain no longer functions, and th who may very well never have wanted something like that. But if you don't think about these things when you're healthy, then particularly if something is wrong with your mind, you have, you have no power to act on them. You've been a great audience. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>